to have you here this morning. Let me uh, mention Pat Snyder this morning, uh, someone we certainly need to pray for this morning. Uh, Pat, as you probably know, has not been eating and drinking uh, very much lately. Uh, no appetite and no thirst. And um, She was taken to the hospital. She was there a couple of days and came home. Um, some of her organs now are beginning to fail. Um, they're giving her morphine and trying to keep her comfortable at this time. So um, pray for her, pray for uh, Jeff and um, Patty are here this morning. Uh, let's see, Dennis, no. So pray for the family. Um, we don't know when the Lord is, you know, what his timing is and how all this is gonna play out, but um, Pat knows the Lord and she's ready, you know, to be with the Lord when he should call. So it's not an easy time as you can imagine for uh, Pat's family, um, but the rejoicing is, is that when the Lord does call, you know, up yonder, uh, she'll be there, and so we thank the Lord for that, for her salvation, uh, which she clearly knows, and um, knows that someday she'll be uh, with her Savior. So, Father, we come before you this morning, and we are saddened by the fact that uh, Pat, Lord, we assume is in her final days. Uh, Father, we um, will miss Pat, of course, and we're certainly not trying, Lord, to uh, hurry things along, along but uh, Father, it just appears as though uh, her days are numbered. And we pray that, Lord, you might keep her comfortable, uh, that, Lord, um, there wouldn't be any suffering. And, Father, you and your timing, uh, Lord, you would take her to be with yourself. I pray for Jeff and for uh, Dennis and Tim and Patty and uh, these um, sons and daughters and pray, Lord, that, uh, Father, you might comfort them. This is not an easy time uh, to see mom uh, not doing well. So we commit her to you, Lord, as we have been for several months now. We know that things have just not been the same. And we just ask, Lord, that uh, you might do what is right. Father, we know you will. Uh, we know you're a God who always does what is right. And so we commit her to you in, in every way. Father, we pray for the team in Bolivia. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given to this team. And pray that, Lord, as they attend these church services, that they might be blessed in a special way. And that, Father, this afternoon is... They will be ministering to the children, that, Father, you would use them in a great way to give to the children um, what they have, but, Father, we know it goes both ways. We know that kids give back. Uh, it's just what kids do. And so we pray that both would be blessed, all would be blessed, Lord, as a result of their ministry, and pray that you, Lord, might be greatly glorified. Father, we thank you for these songs that we've sung, this last one, Lord, that really quotes Job himself. Lord, Job was the one that said, you give and you take away, and blessed be the name of the Lord our God. Father, the song that speaks of you not removing suffering, but seeing us through suffering. Father, we thank you for that, and we pray this morning as we open the pages of Scripture once again. And we look at this book called Job, and we look at his life and what he experienced, 
all the suffering and pain and agony. And yet, Lord, as we learned this morning in Sunday school, Lord, you are the one who sends these things our way, that you are a sovereign God. And we know from the first opening chapters, Lord, that Satan had to receive permission to even touch Job. So we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a God who is all-powerful, a God who is in absolute control of all things. Lord, we may look around us and not always see that or believe that as we look at the chaos in the world and the evil in the world. Yet, Lord, you sit on the throne. You rule and you reign completely and totally in every area of life. And Lord, we lean upon you. We depend on you. We're thankful, Lord, that you have given us a salvation, that we know that we are in your family and in your arms. And Father, nothing can enter into our lives as your children without your permission. So we rest in you this morning. And I pray for others that are going through difficulties. Others, Lord, who are going through the struggles of life, whether that be physical or emotional or mental or spiritual. Father, we rest in you, knowing that you, Lord, can do all things, for nothing is impossible with you. And so we bow before you this morning. And we bow, Lord, before you this morning in great humility, thanking you for who you are and all the great and mighty and wonderful things you do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing. Hymn number 28. Leonard's going to come and lead us in a couple of hymns before we open the book of Job. Come thy fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the name I'm fixed upon it, claim of God's redeeming love. Hitherto I love and bless me, thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy grant praising safely home to thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, walked with me in precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a 
debtor daily I'm constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee prone to I invite you to turn to hymn number 37. Hymn number 37. <clears throat> Great is thy faithfulness. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we sing, and then those in uh, junior church can be dismissed. Hymn number 37. <clears throat> Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassion, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great
Be seated. Job had three friends, and when they first came to Job, it all went pretty well. Uh, they were there to comfort him, and they did. Uh, they wept, they grieved, uh, they sat with Job for an entire week, not saying a word. When they first saw Job, they hardly recognized him as their good buddy. But after the seven days, they opened their mouths. And out of their mouths came accusation, came condemnation, came all kinds of things that brought no comfort at all to Job. Each time they spoke, Job responded. And Job, all the way through these dialogues, defended his innocence and defended his righteousness. Finally, the Bible says the friends, they stopped talking. They stopped condemning. They stopped accusing. We might say at that point in the story that Job won the argument. But he still doesn't know why. All of these things happened to him. Why did he suffer as he did? Why would his ten children be killed under a collapsed building? Why would all of his animals be stolen and killed? Why would he then be afflicted with this horrible skin disease? When God himself said about Job, that he is blameless and innocent and righteous, that he shuns evil and he fears God. Job still does not know why all of this suffering. He believes that God is in control. God gives, God takes away. In the second chapter, he said, shall we not accept good from God and not trouble? He believes in a sovereign God. He believes that God rules the world. He believes that God is just and he's wise. But he doesn't know why. God would permit such a thing. You know, we often live that way, don't we? We often come to the place where Job is. And we say to ourselves, why am I suffering as I am suffering? What did I do to deserve this? And we often have the same question in our minds. Why me? But then we say as Job, but God gives and he takes away. We believe in a sovereign God who is in control of all things. We believe that God knows all things and God loves us more than we will ever know. And sometimes we quote scripture, God's ways are higher than ours. And that's not a bad way to live. That's a good way to live. But it's interesting because the writer of the book of Job, and we're not sure who that is, 
but the writer is not satisfied to live that way. The writer of the book of Job is not satisfied with a question why. Because the writer believes that there are some things that God has revealed. That not everything is concealed. But God wants us to know why the suffering. We may not always know the answer to that question. But God believe, or Job believes, and the writer believes, that God has a purpose in Job's suffering. And there's something that Job needs to know and something that Job needs to learn. Why else would we have such a long book with all of these dialogues between the friends and Job? This morning, we're introduced to a fourth friend. Yeah, that's right. There's another one. His name is Elihu. And he enters now the story in Job chapter 32. In Job chapter 32, we're introduced to a man by the name of Elihu. Apparently, this friend of Job's had been there while the three friends and Job were having their dialogue. But he remained silent. If you look at verse 6, of chapter 32, it says this, So Elihu, Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, this is what he said, I am young in years, and you are old. That's referring to the three friends. You're old, and that is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. So here is... Elihu, who is the younger of the friends, with respect for his elders, he allowed them to speak. But now, after having heard these friends and Job going back and forth and back and forth, he says, I've heard enough. I've got to give my two cents. I cannot remain silent any longer. And so Elihu now, he is going to enter into the story. And we read in the opening verses of chapter 32, he was angry with Job. And he was angry with the three friends. Here's Elihu's argument. Remember the argument of the three friends. You reap what you sow. They looked at Job's suffering and they said, because you are suffering, you must be hiding some horrendous sin. Because sin equals suffering, and righteousness equals prosperity. They had this formula. Elihu, however, has a different argument. This is Elihu's argument. Suffering is not punishment of your sin, Job. Oh, no, you're not suffering because of your sin. Suffering is a refinement of righteousness. Suffering is a refinement of righteousness. That's Elihu's argument. And I'm here to say what he is going to tell Job is right. He's on the right track. Now, if you read commentaries, 
some will argue that he was no better than his three friends. I'm here to suggest that he was. You may not agree with that, um, but that's okay. I'm here to suggest that Elihu had a good argument. Now let me give you some reasons before we look at Elihu's argument. Why you should accept Elihu's counsel. Why should we accept him and not accept the three friends? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, he is presenting something new. He's not following the argument of his three friends. Look at verse 14 of chapter 32. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. In other words, I am not going to argue as you three men have argued. I have something new that I want to bring into this story. He's angry with the three friends in verse, uh, the opening verses of this chapter. He disagrees with them in verse 3. So there's something important that these friends have not included in their argument that Elihu is. So first of all, he's presenting something completely new and different than the three friends. Again, I'm suggesting these reasons why we should say, Elihu, you're right on track. Secondly, six chapters are devoted to his words. Starting at chapter 32 all the way through chapter 37, six chapters are devoted to the words of this friend. This large space indicates that he has something very crucial to say. Third, Job never argues with Elihu. You remember he argued with the three friends, right? Every time they said something, he would come right back at them. But Elihu, what he says, Job never argues with. Look at chapter 33 and verse 32. It says, if you, now Elihu speaking to Job, if you have anything to say, you answer me, speak up, for I want to vindicate you. Elihu, at the middle of his speech to Job, gives him a chance to speak. Job, if you have something to say, if you disagree with me, let me know now. And you know, Job never, ever responds to Elihu. He has no argument against what he is saying. You know, it is interesting also, when Elihu's finished speaking to Job at the end of chapter 37, guess who's the next voice we hear? God's. Job never speaks back to this young man. God's voice is the next voice we hear in chapter 38. It's almost as though Elihu is, is the forerunner of God himself. You remember when John the Baptist came on the scene and uh, the Bible says he was the forerunner of the Messiah. He prepared the way. It's almost as though Elihu is preparing the way, preparing Job's heart to receive what God then is going to say. And then lastly, God does not rebuke Elihu. Remember back in chapter 42? 
when we looked there a couple weeks ago. And God then speaks to the three friends, and he said to the three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, you did not speak right as my servant Job spoke. He rebuked the three friends. God did. But God never rebukes Elihu. He didn't include him in that rebuke at the end of the book. I'm suggesting that what Elihu says is something important. And so what can we learn this morning from this young man who actually claims in chapter 32 and verse 8 that he is speaking as he's being guided by God's Spirit? In chapter 32 and verse 8, but it is the Spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. He's speaking for God under the direction and guidance of God himself. So chapter 33, let's start with a couple verses. Clearly, we're not going to be able to read all six chapters, but let's try to pull out a couple of the verses that I think will highlight uh, what we need to learn uh, that Elihu is saying. Look at chapter 33 and verse 8. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words. Now here's here's how we know that Elihu was listening to the three friends and Job go back and forth. He says, this is what I heard you say, Job. Now he's going to quote Job. Okay? This is what I heard you say. And this is a quote from earlier verses. I am pure I have done no wrong. I am clean and free from sin. And yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. In these verses, Elihu rebukes Job. He feels that Job needs corrected in some areas. Not every area. Remember, he is a righteous man. He's a godly man. He's an upright man. But he's not a sinless man. He's not a perfect man. And so Elihu now, having heard what Job said, he needs to correct him. The first thing we read here. He says what? He says, God is my enemy. He perceives God as his, as, as, as his enemy. Job does. Now, you know, when we're in the midst of a storm, when we're in the middle of that tragedy, sometimes we feel that way, don't we? God, why aren't you on my side? Why don't you come, God, and rescue me? And there are times when we feel like Job, that God is our enemy for sending this into my life. God is my enemy for having done this to me. I don't deserve this. I think we all feel sometimes that way. When we're in the middle of of the storm of the century. But God isn't our enemy. And Job, but Job said that God 
is my enemy. He perceives God to be his enemy. And so Elihu rebukes him for saying such a thing. But there's something else I read in this text. Job claims purity without sin. He claims righteousness and perfection, which we know no one is. No one is sinless. Job may be the best man on earth at this time, but he's not perfect. No one is perfect. The Bible says we've all sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. 1 John 1a says he who claims he has no sin deceives himself. So for Job to make such a claim is not right. And Elihu rebukes him for that. Later, when we get there in chapter 42, Job will repent. There is some sin in his life that has been exposed by Elihu. There is some sin in his life that God will expose when God begins to fire question after question to Job, Job will realize that I am not that perfect person I think I am. And that needs to be exposed. And therefore, Job, at the end of the book, he will repent. Job's good. He is righteous. He is upright. But he's not perfect. And he's not sinless. And so we continue to read. Look at verse 14 of chapter 33. It says, For God does speak, now one way and now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people, as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings, why? What is the purpose of that, God? To turn them from wrongdoing, to keep them from pride, and to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones. In these verses, Elihu explains his position on suffering. Elihu's explanation of suffering. And he begins by saying that God speaks. And God speaks in two ways in this passage. The one way he speaks is through dreams and visions. Now this is before scripture. The book of Job was written, we, we don't know exactly when, but it was the first book ever written, placed in the Bible. So we're going back, way back. This is before law. This is before scripture. So God would speak, but he spoke through these dreams. He spoke through the visions of the night in verse 15. The second way he speaks is in verse 19. There it says, or someone may be chastened 
on a bed of pain. Now, when you think of chastening, don't think of the word punish. God corrects. God disciplines. Why? Well, according to verse 17, to turn from wrongdoing, to keep from pride, and to preserve from the pit. So, Elihu is saying this. God speaks. One way he speaks is through dreams and visions. Today he speaks through his word. So God speaks. There's another way God speaks, and that is through correction. That is through discipline. And the reason God speaks in affliction, in chastening, is to turn from wrongdoing and to keep from pride and to preserve from the pit. A lie who is putting the pain of suffering and the visions of the night and dreams side by side. This is how God speaks. What he's saying to Job is God is speaking to you through your suffering. That's important. God speaks to us through affliction. And what he's trying to say is, verse 17, the purpose of me speaking to you in that affliction is to turn you from wrongdoing, to keep you from pride, and to preserve you from the pit. God doesn't picture God as an, or, or Elihu doesn't picture God as an angry judge as the other three friends did. God is angry and God is punishing you because you are an awful sinner. That's not what Elihu is saying. Elihu pictures God in the suffering as a redeemer, as a savior, as a rescuer, as a doctor. It's not the pain of an executioner's whip it's the pain of a surgeon's knife. The surgeon who causes pain, but only to heal. That's what God does in affliction. He brings about pain to correct, to heal, to keep from wrongdoing. And notice the word in verse 17, pride. It's interesting because through this book we read of pride of sinning arrogantly and it's almost as if yes the affliction that came upon job initially was because god and satan were communicating and satan said the only reason job loves you god and worships you is because of all the things you've given to him take all these away and Job will curse you to your face. And so God allowed Satan to go and afflict him. That was the initial reason why God afflicted Job and brought about suffering. But it appears as though as this story goes on, there's this pride in Job that seems to be coming to the surface. When Job claims innocence and Job claims righteousness, 
and Job claims to have no sin? That's pride. It's almost as though Job looks at himself as this wonderful man. Look at what I am. Look at who I, what I have done. The fact that Elihu starts to bring pride to the surface seems to indicate that in Job, there's this self-righteousness. You ever, in at Christmas, you get those, those little balls, you know, with all those little, like, snowflakes in it? Remember those? Or, well, I guess they're still on the market. I don't even remember those, but I guess I haven't bought one, and I probably never, ever bought one. But, you know, those, those, they're balls, and it's really clear liquid in there, and then at the bottom is, is all these little snow things, little flakes, and then you take it, and you shake it up, and they come to the surface, and they come down like this. Here's Job's life, clear, liquid, pure, righteous, upright, blameless. But it seems as though down at the bottom is this residue, this sediment, kind of this hidden pride, if you will. And as suffering and affliction takes place, it's as though God has shaken his life. And all of this pride is starting to surface and Elihu now is pointing that out no Job you're not being punished your your righteousness is being refined Job is pure he is righteous he's upright he's all of those things he said it and God said it but he's not sinless and affliction sometimes will bring out that which is hidden, that sin that hasn't quite come to the surface. And so what Elihu is doing here, he's bringing that to light. And isn't that often what pain does? It brings sin out into the light, the sediment, the pride that is down there, shaken and exposed. Something else. I think I did. I skip a point, John. Uh, oh, chapter thirty-six. Look at chapter thirty-six. Look at chapter thirty-six with me. There's another explanation he gives for um, suffering. We're trying to understand his explanation of suffering. Number one. Um, it's to expose uh, wrongdoing. Uh, the second reason, verse, or in chapter 36, uh, what he does in chapter 36, he speaks about the wicked and the godly and, and the, uh, the righteous. He has two groups in mind, uh, Elihu has in verse 36. Okay, now, now follow this. He has these two groups in mind. And um, he says this, he distinguishes these two groups. Um, look at verse uh, 6. Uh, it says, He does not keep the wicked alive, but he gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. So verse 6, he speaks about the wicked. Those really bad guys. Those really guys, those ones that do evil. You know, the wicked. 
But in verse 7, he speaks of the righteous. So we're comparing or we're distinguishing between the, the wicked and the righteous. Now, in these verses, it sounds a whole lot like the first three friends. You reap what you sow. The wicked here, um, he doesn't keep them alive. Death is the result. You sin, you die. Verse 7, it's the righteous who he enthrones and exalts. That sounds, again, like the three friends. If you are righteous, you will prosper. So this sounds a whole lot like these three friends. But the question is, in Job's mind, but why do the righteous suffer? And that's the question that we've been asking all the way through this book. Why, why is it that a man like Job suffers? We understand why a wicked person suffers. We understand why a, a good person prospers. But why does a righteous person suffer? So uh, the, the, we, we move to verse 8, and it says this. But if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. There's, again, the idea of, of pride. He makes them listen to correction, and he commands them to repent of their evil. The righteous are far from sinlessly perfect. And the old nature of pride sometimes, it will, it will surface as it did with Job, as you shake one with affliction. And when he accuses God, Job, of being his enemy, when he says in the opening verses of chapter 32 uh, uh, about justifying himself and not justifying God, these are sins of pride. And these are what is, are, are being surfaced, what is being exposed. And affliction, what it does, according to these verses, it makes that right, righteous person sensitive. Listen, affliction makes a righteous, we're talking about righteous people, not the wicked, but the reason for suffering in a righteous person is it makes that person sensitive to his remaining sinfulness. And it helps him to hate that sin and renounce it, as we have in verse 10. Listen to the correction, repent of your evil. Pain brings sin out into the light. Even in a righteous person, sometimes it takes affliction. In someone who is walking in the path of God, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Sometimes we think, you know, we've arrived. Sometimes we think, you know, look at me. <laughs> you know, I don't beat my wife, I don't rob banks. And you know what I do? I, I read my Bible every day. And I pray without ceasing. And I serve God in the church. I give every week. And sometimes we, in our righteousness and goodness, sometimes we get a little puffed up. Sometimes we look at others. Have you ever done this? Have you ever looked at others and said, boy, I'm glad I'm not doing what he's doing. I, I look pretty good compared to her over there. 
you know what that is? That's pride. And sometimes there's pride, I think, creeps into our lives, and it just lays there like sediment until some kind of affliction comes along, like Job. And then it begins to surface and expose who we really are. And Job, I believe, is beginning to see through the dialogue of the three friends and now Elihu, you know what? Maybe I'm not quite as good as I thought I was. You do know God hates pride, right? Back in the book of Proverbs, it's one of God's top six sins. God hates a proud look. Someone who thinks they're better than others someone who thinks they're holier than they might be, someone who prides themselves in what they do and who they are. Listen, it's only by the grace of God we are who we are. And if you are one who is walking in the footsteps of Jesus, and I hope you are, don't be proud of that. You are who you are by the grace of God. Job seemed to be proud of who he was. And the Elihu was pointing out those sins. You're not perfect, Job. You're a good guy, but you certainly are not sinless. To call God your enemy? To try and justify yourself rather than God? And you know what the one translation states? What that means? You believe you're more righteous than God is righteous? Are you kidding me? So Job had these little things in him that had to be exposed as a result of affliction. So how do we understand suffering? How should we view it? The commentator I used to create most of this sermon, he said, Elihu's argument was a suffering is a refinement a refinement of righteousness. It's not that you aren't righteous. It's not that you're not, not a good person. It's not that you're, all these, th all these things are great. But we can all be refined. You haven't arrived yet. And if you think you have, that's pride. If you think I can't quite get any better than who I am right now, that's a proud look. How do we view suffering? As a refinement of righteousness. A refinement of righteousness. You know, everything that comes into our lives, God is refining us, is he not? He's trying to teach us. He's trying to show us. He wants us to learn through everything. And affliction's one of those things. It's one of those things, as Elihu said, that God speaks to us through that. And when we become afflicted, when we suffer, when we have something like that in our lives, we should be asking the question, God, what are you trying to teach me? What can I learn in this? How does my life need to change? How are you trying to refine my life to become more like Jesus. I want to close and 
do so by just reading a few verses. Listen to these verses. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little, while you may have had, your, had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, it produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. May God be praised. Father, we bow before you and we ask, Lord, if there is something in our lives that has not been revealed, that has not come to the surface. Father, we ask that as we sing this closing song, that, Lord, you might search our hearts, that you, Lord, might expose that hidden sin that lies within us, Lord, we know that you love us. And we know, Lord, it's because of that love, according to Hebrews, that you bring about discipline or sometimes affliction or suffering or whatever that might be in order to bring it to light. Father, speak to us. Speak to us. For our desire is to be more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This closing song, hymn number 387, Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. Let's stand together. We'll sing this and we'll be dismissed. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart today. Try me, O oh Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. sin and set me free. I pray
we thank you that you're in the business of changing us. Lord, it's, sometimes it takes a lot to change our hearts, a lot to move us into the direction we need to go. Do what it takes. Lord, we want to be holy as you are holy. We want to be conformed to the image of your dear son. So use that surgeon's scalpel, Lord, if necessary to bring us to where we need to be. You're a great and wonderful and sovereign God. Lord, you give. Lord, you take away. Lord, you give good, but sometimes trouble. Lord, help us to accept your wonderful and perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 